0: I'm speaking with Navy Lieutenant Sean Lavelle. He's the founder and lead of the ILOC development team, which develops software capabilities for the P-8 fleet. He is also a P-8 instructor tactical coordinator and a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and Johns Hopkins University. Sean, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. It is great to be talking with you today.
0: Great. Can you just first set the scene for us? Can you describe what is the TACO's mission on the P-8 and how does that work traditionally? You said there was a lot of rules of thumb and mental math. So can you set the scene for where you are in the Navy and what you do and what was going on?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. So before I get into that, I just need to put out the, the standard disclaimer that the views presented here are my own uh, and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the Department of the Navy. Uh, so, uh, getting into the question. So, uh, absolutely. I, I should I should tell you what the P-8 does first before uh, what the TACO does. So, uh, the P-8's main role uh, in the Navy is as an anti-submarine warfare aircraft. So, what that means is it it has a lot of sensors on board, but its main sensor is a sonobuoy, And these are, are really cool little pieces of equipment that we shoot out of the aircraft. The most basic kind has... A microphone for listening to submarines on one end, uh, deep in the water, and then on the other end, on the surface of the water, there's a a radio transmitter telling the P-8 what what that uh, microphone is listening to under the water. So the P-8s deploy these to track submarines um, as those submarines sort of make noise underwater, uh, and then the PA can either just maintain track of a submarine or get a targeting solution to kill it with a torpedo. So the TACO's job on the aircraft is twofold. The first uh, sort of job is to decide what the aircraft's going to do from a, a tactical perspective to accomplish that mission. So uh, whether it's deciding uh, what sonobuoys need to be deployed to get uh, accurate positioning data on the the adversary, Um, or deciding how a search and rescue kit ought to be deployed to give people in the water the best chance of survival. Uh, The TAC is deciding all of that um, and implementing it in the aircraft software, which makes it happen in real life. Um, So most of those decisions have some fundamental physical kinematic basis uh, that we can study to find optimal solutions. For instance, the search and rescue kit's effectiveness. Uh, The search and rescue kit's a a little kit we we shoot out into the water and it has a life raft and equipment and stuff like that, food and water for for survivors. The effectiveness of that's impacted by a, a lot of factors like winds, currents, the height of the waves, the state of the survivor, whether they're sort of with it or not, and how good the visibility is. So if it's really foggy out, if there's a lot of clouds, Um, and all those factors interact in really complicated ways to determine how you'd optimally employ the kit. I think it'd be pretty simple, but it's it's actually not. So it's really hard to think too deeply about those interactions uh, in the aircraft uh, when their lives are at stake, or if you're facing an, an enemy who's shooting back at you. So we, we try to come up with rules of thumb and, and basic playbooks we can call from when we see familiar situations and sort of go with that. But that's not always optimal and can make us a little bit predictable. It's what we've had. The other side of the TACO's job is is crew leadership. So the TACO coordinates the efforts of nine crew members. There are four enlisted operators operating the radar, the camera, um, an electronic surveillance system, and the passive and active sonobuoys um, there's a, a co-tactical coordinator, so uh, the co-tactical, taco, is the, the more junior naval flight officer on the aircraft, who's building the common operating picture for the crew, communicating that picture off the aircraft. And then there's uh, uh, there's three usually three pilots keeping the, the crew safe and getting them where they need to go. And, and the taco is just making sure all those team members are on the same page, working towards the same goal. The taco is just sort of constantly communicating with everyone, uh, relaying their own understanding of the situation. Um, verbally, and then updating that understanding based on crew feedback, and then just as sort of the last step, directing the crew members of what they should be doing uh, to accomplish the mission.
0: Yeah, so uh, it sounds like there's a lot going on here, right? Yeah. One, one, of the, one, of, one of the things you guys have to do is kind of localization of subs or whatever it is that you're trying to track, and that can be a little bit math heavy. So can you kind of give us just like a little bit of the origin story of the iLock development team? I kind of understand... It started with an Excel sheet, and then it kind of gravitated into computer code and and applications. So you can not just say, like, you given us a little background there. You know, what was the specific problem that led to, you know, hey, let's go, let's go out and do something new? Uh,
1: yeah. So, uh, like you said, uh, one of the the most complex mission phases of a, an anti-submarine warfare mission is localization of, of a submarine. So, what localization is is uh, it's when the P eight aircraft has some idea where the submarine is. Maybe they got a quick radar hit on the, the submarine's periscope um, that disappeared, uh, or they got a really faint detection from a buoy. So they have an idea there's a submarine. They don't know exactly where it is or where it's going. Um, and then the P-8 has to go contain that growing area of uncertainty where the submarine could be and then refine its estimate of the, of the sub's uh, position, course, and speed. So it can maintain an accurate track or move in to kill it. Yeah, so that's, that's what localization is to decide the right pattern of sonobuoys so deciding where what spacing what what type of sonobuoys to deploy the tackle has a, has to take a ton of factors into consideration you know the speed of the aircraft uh, the speed of the submarine which determines how big that area of uncertainty is going to be by the time you get there how far the sonobuoys will be able to detect the submarine which is determined by really complicated environmental factors sort of how tightly the aircraft can turn which determines the type of patterns that are achievable to deploy how long it takes buoys to start deploy- to start working once you deploy them, what you think the target's going to do once you get there. There's just a ton of factors, right? And we've had mechanisms to try to handle at least some of those factors for a while, but they take a, a TACO doing pen and paper math for a really long time during mission planning, going over all the scenarios they think they might face during their mission. Um, and those mechanisms are really blunt. Uh, they're-, they're really simplified models of reality um, that assume away a lot of complexity, and that in turn results in a a pretty big lack of accuracy, um, and therefore suboptimal tactical recommendations and actions. So the first tool uh, that a couple of weapons and tactics instructors in the PA community made was just an Excel spreadsheet that did some of the math that TACOs were already doing. Uh, The idea was just to do that a little bit faster so you could mission plan more quickly and maybe even in the aircraft a little bit. We took the idea that we should be building software to help TACOs make decisions uh, and sort of ran with it from there. So the main tool that we produce is also now called iLook, sort of in, in honor of that first Excel spreadsheet. Um, the first tool we, we built for that simulated the uh, localization phase of a mission. Um, with all the factors we just talked about, and many more. And the tool simulated uh, with Monte Carlo simulation, techniques dozens of potential sun and buoy patterns uh, against thousands of possible submarines, and told the taco what the best option was. And that tool cut the learning curve so much that uh, a naval flight officer with about six months of time in a squadron, um, was as proficient as an instructor tactical coordinator with like two years of time in the squadron, and who had been selected as a top performer in their squadrons. So massively impactful. And this is one of the, the most complicated and hard to teach things in ASW. Since then, ILOC has evolved into more of a platform than just as a standalone application. There's about 25 different tools, applications embedded within the platform. All of the tools are written in JavaScript and run in a web browser. While it runs in a web browser, you don't actually need internet connection because these are all just standalone tools. So uh, what's really cool about that is that anyone in the Department of Defense can write JavaScript and run it on their workstation right now. Literally, all you need is Notepad uh, and Google Chrome, and you can run pretty much anything. You don't need a compiler or extra permissions on your machine, so it's a very scalable approach. It's also very easy to make secure applications when they don't have any more permissions than, than any website you might be visiting on your government computer already do. So... This approach uh, has allowed us to make applications that help optimize decisions in every mission phase that we do uh, on P-8s, and it saves P-8 crews a ton of time. Our goal is to automate labor-intensive processes and also reduce redundancy a lot of the time. So one of the most successful applications in it generates intelligence reports. So in the the old days, that junior naval flight officer who's uh, maintaining sort of the intelligence picture would get a piece of intelligence from the crew. They would uh, write that down in a log. They would generate reports in flight to transmit to other units out there. And then at the end, they would type up their paper logs, for this really large post-mission report that gets submitted to a higher headquarters. So they're writing the same information down at least three times every single mission, just a ton of wasted time and, and redundancy there. So one of the, the most useful ILOC tools provides an easy form for every report type. It keeps a log of all the reports and, and automatically generates the in-flight and post-mission reports in the right format. So you go from at least a triple redundancy to a single more accurate entry, and that saved countless hours across the fleet and reduced reporting errors by about 90%. All this work that we've done has been done strictly by P-8 aviators. So uh, there are about six people who contribute code that goes up and down as people get out of the Navy and move on to other things and, and come on to the team. And many more help uh, with the, the design decisions and help inform our priorities. But about until about six months ago, everyone just sort of contributed with work uh, accomplished in their free time. Uh, now we have two people at the, the P-8 weapons school who spend the majority of the time working on it. But the majority of the story has been people just doing this in their free time.
0: So, yeah, it sounds like uh, there's a lot going on. You, you wrote in the a- a nice War on the Rocks piece that, you know, just taking into initial programming costs, you estimate it might cost about a million dollars to procure the capabilities that you're able to deliver through the traditional methods and then prorating the time of the operators against their salaries. It just costs the Navy, you know, about 60000 to kind of get this new capability. So why did it kind of take so long and why did the operators kind of have to go in and do it themselves where was you know the acquisition or the sustainment community here
1: uh, yeah, so uh, this is a little bit speculative on my part, but the way I see our acquisition community uh, working is obviously from a requirements-driven process. The combatant commander uh, does a war game, and they say, "I need this capability. I need ten ships that can shoot missiles that go 100 miles." Right? They need a defined capability to help helps in some operational plan. So the acquisition community gets that requirement, and they go out and they buy that capability. As you buy capability, though, you are also buying complexity for the end user. And in that requirements process, there's very little attention paid to reducing complexity for that end user to help them make decisions with the new capabilities they have available to them. Um, It's just not clear where that need pops out in the acquisition process to me. So I think once we get this added complexity, there is a sort of grassroots desire tools to help make decisions with that new added capability so that we don't massively expand the time to train or reduce the quality of decisions and actions we're making with this new capability. That's sort of where I see that disparity coming from.
0: Yeah, I I hear you there. We tend to have a, a nice... Uh way about creating additional layers of complexity and, and complicatedness onto these systems and then they kind of get deployed. One of the things that we often think about with the acquisition community that doesn't do so well and is that iterative feedback with the requirements so that you're really kind of, we don't just like create this complexity of, of applications and programs and then throw it over the fence and then it only comes back, you know, in this kind of waterfall process eventually to kind of get updated. But the business logic seems to be really important in how software development happens and iterates, and it really requires that operational perspective. So can you just talk a little bit about business logic and why it's so important?
1: Yeah, I think of business logic as the rules that define the domain that you're building software for. So let's say you're building an application, a piece of software that... Maybe it tells you how to administer a, a test for COVID-19 or coronavirus. So the tool might watch you with a, a camera and tell you when you're doing a step in correctly. That tool would have to be really complex. Um, there's a lot of really sophisticated computer vision technology um, that would have to go into it. On the less complicated side, you'd also have to program in the rules about you how you would administer that test probably wrong about this. It probably doesn't make any sense, but uh, maybe the rules are you have your patient tilt their head back. The medical professional inserts the test in the patient's nose. They wait two minutes and then ask the patient if they're okay before they let them them head out. Uh, The application would monitor for a break in those rules and alert the, the medical professional if there's any problem. If you programmed in those rules incorrectly because you didn't really know how to administer the test um, as the programmer, you're going to have a real problem on your hands. Even if you have really brilliant programmers and software developers who made incredible computer computer vision technology, it doesn't matter because they mess up the business logic and they're telling the medical professional to do wrong. So the software is going to be useless. And that's why getting the business logic is so important. The domains we're building software for to help make decisions in combat are way more complicated than that example. And most of our military relies on PowerPoints, really thick publications, experiential learning, verbal pass down, all those things to teach humans the business logic that defines their warfare domains. So in the PA community, it takes about three or four years to to qualify as a, a tactical coordinator or a senior pilot on the aircraft. So it's extremely hard, maybe maybe impossible, for a software engineer without experience in those domains to come into them and get the business logic completely right on their own. The issue is when I talk to senior officers about what we do on the ILOC development team, uh, the biggest area of contention is that we need tactical-level operators to be part of the software development process. There is a perceived cost associated with taking time away from operators Uh, so they can learn to contribute to a software development team. It's absolutely correct that there is a cost, but the cost of relying on people who are less than expert in the warfighting domain uh, is massive. You are much more likely to deliver software that doesn't really meet a a warfighter need or is just wrong if you don't have the the recent relevant experience on the team. On the other hand, if you do involve actual operators in the development of software that helps them do their jobs, you not only get better software that meets actual needs, but those, those operators I've noticed, also have to go through a process of making their understanding explicit enough for a computer to understand. And that massively strengthens that that developer slash operator's understanding of, of their job. And it makes everyone better.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, when I think of like enterprise software, it's hard a lot of times for developers because they have to have intimate knowledge of the enterprise going on, whether that's kind of like sales or accounting or what have you. And then the Department of Defense kind of seems to be one level more abstracted away, right? It's very much different than civilian life. Without being in it, it's kind of hard to have an understanding of what exactly is going on. And so while, you know, developers for consumer products, everyone's a consumer, right? The developer is simultaneously consumer and can have a consumer perspective. It's very difficult for someone who's never been in the military to have those operational perspectives to correctly interpret requirements rather than just looking at a thousand page you know slide deck and then trying to interpret what that means you wrote something that was like quote it is often better to have a small number of talented engineers on a team alongside many people familiar with the business in question rather than having many talented engineers but few people familiar with the business so can you just go into that a little bit more
1: the way I think about this is like take your the navigation app that you have on your phone. Uh, it probably works really well. It gets you to the places you need to go to, and it does everything exactly as you want to do it. And I think a big reason that that app is so good is because literally every single person who makes that piece of software probably also uses that on a daily basis. Making good software is not about having the perfect idea of what it needs to be, but about iterating on that and and learning as as your users use it and and sort of thinking. Of better ways to to do it in stride, and having users who are using that software all of the time as part of the development team is the best way to possibly do that. You talked about how the the business logic of the military is really abstract for civilian programmers who who aren't really part of that. I think that that is absolutely correct, and it shows how important it is for there to be uh, developers who understand the business logic on the team because it is so different. I think most people who work in a even in the non-military Space will agree that the enterprise software they use in their company is probably not as good as the consumer software that they use, and that's probably because the consumer software is built by people who also use that software, whereas the consumer one, like you said, is, or the enterprise one, like you said, is, is built by people who, who probably don't use that software on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, he kind of provided a phrase that's called software-defined tactics. And I kind of like that. I Googled it. You're the only person who's ever used that concept, (laughs) that word, software-defined tactics. So can you uh, expand on that, the software-defined tactics?
1: Yeah, so the, the very basic idea is really simple. We, we want to use uh, software to take in observations about the battle space from the operator um, and then provide the operator with options they can select from to accomplish what they're trying to do. So that's sort of software-defined tactics. So the tactics themselves um, are defined in the software. The operator provides observations, and then the software tells them what to do, kind of. So that's the first component. The second component um, is that we maintain a quick update rate so that we can uniformly update fleet tactics uh, with quick software updates. Um, and that helps to create really rapid fleet wide learning um, rather than just an individual learning something and then changing how they operate. Uh, the whole fleet can change based on, on good positive learning. So that's sort of the really basics of software defined tactics. I can get into it a little bit more deeply if you'd like.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely go into that. And I, I wanted to, do, to rally back on some of what you're saying there. But you also wrote something you said, quote, skilled warfighters can and should handle the more basic levels of software development. So can you talk a little bit more about this kind of like organizational aspect? What do you see like individuals in the military, what is the roles and responsibilities kind of in this world of software defined tactics?
1: Yeah, so clearly the the lead person in this is someone who does the job and uh, sees problems on a daily basis, sees how the enemy's reacting to different tactics so they can stay ahead of them. What I'm talking about in the more basic levels of software development, So we are making standalone applications in JavaScript and HTML. You don't really need a lot of tooling to do that. You don't need the complicated software factories that the air force is doing to do this because of that, the learning curve is really short. You don't need to spend a lot of time learning new tools. If you don't really have tools to, uh, to use as a developer. So The the person doing this is a a fleet, a tactical level operator who also knows a little bit about software development. So we have started training people to do this in the iLook development team, bringing on board smart people with a little bit of a computer science background, sort of teaching them our philosophy and our code base, and then unleashing them to build tools that help them do their job a little bit more effectively.
0: Can I ask you real quick on the tools? Is it that the types of applications you're building, you don't really need more sophisticated software tools or is it just kind of difficult? Like how is that process of you procuring, you know, a couple hundred dollar, a couple thousand dollar software tool to help you get things done? Is that, is that a barrier?
1: I don't think that these are not things that you can really buy commercial off the shelf. They're, they're really, really exquisitely crafted towards a very unique uh, use case. Um, So you don't need to make them overly robust uh, and maintainable. These are usually, um, I don't think any of our tools are more than about a 1,000 lines of code. So they're not overwhelmingly complicated to maintain.
0: But I, I meant like the enabling tools, like a software development environment or, or some kind of plug Are you able to get those or do you not need them so much? You just kind of organically build your code?
1: Yeah, we just sort of organically build our code. It would be great to have those kinds of things um, on one hand because obviously those tools work uh, well to enable continuous integration and deployment um, and automated testing. But they're also hard to get to the, the edge node programmers who are out deployed to Seventh Fleet uh, making software. So the ideal would be to get those tools sort of in a cloud environment where uh, we could push those out to developers on the edge because the sort of enclave software development infrastructure that is more prevalent across the, the military today just doesn't work for this kind of software development.
0: Again, we're going to rally back on some of the things you were talking about, but I want you to, because you were talking about deploying it to the cloud, there's been a lot of talk going on on enterprise tools, especially the Air Force has been kind of leading this effort. And you've kind of written a little bit about them as kind of an example to follow. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how do you think about scaling the ILOG model? whether you would integrate with the Air Force enterprise tools, like how do those enterprise tools like Platform One, Cloud One, how would they enable you to scale and bring this to more types of platforms throughout the Navy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I agree with you right now in the Department of Defense, the Air Force's efforts are probably the gold standard out there. However, there is a lot of energy in the Navy and Marine Corps right now to to also emulate that sort of software factory, DevSecOps tooling that the Air Force has built out. So the Navy doesn't really have the same marketing that the Air Force efforts have, uh, but it does have really solid people who care and see the path forward. So a couple of those efforts, one is called uh, Oasis. It's a, a software factory modeled after Kessel Run from the Air Force. It's run by the Naval Information Warfare Center in Newark, uh in Charleston. And it's still really early days, but I- I'm also really confident that they're going to be a huge success story that we'll hear about more soon. You have the, the Force Readiness and Analysis Group uh, out in San Diego that's working with NUIC and an Air Force software factory, like you said, um, in Hawaii called Tron. And they're building an application called Puckboard uh, that uses DevSecOps tooling and met- methodologies. Um, and that op- application aims to uh, change the way aviation squadrons uh, in the Air Force and Navy manage daily operation schedules. Um, so we're actually uh, in the early process of integrating with that team to sort of get into their DevSecOps tooling to help shape that tool to work for Navy squadrons as well as it works for Air Force squadrons. Typically, though, my team operates really differently from the from the typical Air Force software factory. Like, like we said, we don't have typically we don't have the same development tools or money for servers, um, but we're still able to deploy really incredibly impactful software that makes a real difference in the aircraft. Uh, and that's because of our ability to onboard those user developers really quickly like I said, there's there's no learning curve if there's no tools to learn. Um, so we can get as much operator input as is possible. That means we also have to get really creative about testing and, and putting a lot more emphasis on more manual scientific user experimentation to make sure we're building reliable software. But I think that ends up being a strength in the end because we don't have to put as because we have to put a lot of thought into it um, rather than just throwing money at some developer software.
0: With the uh, enterprise tools, it seems like We're still very much in the early days, and I wanted to ask you, do you think it makes sense to kind of integrate into one consolidated structure, or do you think the Navy, you know, has its own types of unique missions, it should benefit from having some competition, some diversity, trying new things out, seeing what works? So is the Navy kind of plugging in to what the Air Force is doing, or is it standing up a similar parallel structure uh, what do you what's going on there?
1: Uh, from what I have seen, and, and I'm certainly not an expert in this, but from what I've seen is that the Navy is largely trying to copy what the Air Force is doing with its own flavor of stuff and, and making sure that we're not just so we're not just completely following what the Air Force is doing, but we're also trying to learn from what they've done, if that makes sense. So at least trying out sort of the same contractors that they have uh, used to get their efforts off of the, the ground floor, but not staying vendor locked or anything like that. I think that's important. I think it's important to, to have code repositories uh, available to everyone so that we can open source it within the Department of Defense, but I don't think there's a need to, to make sure everyone is using the exact same tooling across the whole department.
0: Yeah, I tend to take that view as well that especially in the early days of a technology, it's important to allow diversity to kind of keep running and you'll be able to see what worked, what didn't work, be able to spot the errors because if you just have one monolithic thing, you know, and then try to force everyone into that same model, you might not even notice where the errors are or that there could have been a better way about doing things. Um, so it's yeah. good not to lock us in too early. But I want to kind of go back. You were you were talking about with iLook that you guys were really in the software-defined tactics. It's really about embodying the knowledge base of the operations continually into code and then doing that fast and iterative and getting it out quickly. So again, like DevOps. So can you talk a little bit about, you said that there are three principles of your success and that is continuous delivery, informed evolution, and prioritization of teams over applications. So can you just break down those principles for me a little bit?
1: So I'll start with continuous delivery. So uh, I think this principle is probably uh, It's no surprise to anyone who listens to your podcast, I don't think. Um, Continuous delivery is about doing work in short sprints uh, and being able to deploy that work in equally short time frames. So in the Department of Defense, a typical large enterprise software project, you measure that in that deployment cycles in years, probably. Um, And if you go years between deployments, there uh, are a lot of problems. Either you're not generating very much improvement per unit of time. Um, or the changes that you are deploying infrequently are going to be so massive that you'll have to retrain your users uh, at really huge expense with every release. So uh, we actually do a pretty good job of this in the PA community with our basic mission system on the aircraft. Uh, that gets a new release every year or so, but it still requires days of of retraining every person in the whole fleet and realistically uh, several flights and simulators to get really proficient with the new release. If you measured that with like... Uh, man days. It's it's probably years of of time that we spend every time we, we put out a new a new release. However, if you were to introduce small changes every couple of weeks instead of on a yearly basis, uh, users could handle learning that new software sort of in stride with their normal training and take advantage of those changes in a couple of minutes uh, with no real temporary degradation of performance. Beyond that learning advantage of continuous delivery, your software, I think, uh, usually ends up being a lot more reliable. So no matter the timescale you deploy software uh, with, you're going to create bugs. Uh, There's no no possible way to get around that. Uh, The key task uh, of a software development process is to increase the rate of finding those bugs, uh, increase the rate of fixing those bugs to a level greater than the rate you're creating them. Uh, So frequent deployments mean that your users see small bugs earlier so they can tell you about them. Um, And so that you don't create massive compounding issues over many years. Uh, It also means you can fix them much more quickly. So if you have an annual software release and you have a problem, your users might just have to figure out a a workaround for a whole year before you get another release, uh, which is not ideal. Um, With continuous delivery, you can just fix that software in a couple of days and give the user high quality tools to accomplish their mission. I think it's also really particularly true for tightly coupled systems to have all kinds of components that are talking to each other getting them to work perfectly together Uh, our intuition is is in the military is often to slow everything down to the slowest components that we sort of walk the whole process in sync Um, but i think that our actual effort should be on speeding up the slowest component so that uh, we can adjust the whole system at the speed of relevance so that's sort of continuous delivery
0: yeah that's interesting what you said there though I've heard you know some people saying you know we we gather all this technical debt because we're constantly just like getting quick things out in an iterative environment, and we're always going to the next thing and then loading on this technical debt and not going back. but what you're saying there, I think, is that when you do things quickly and iteratively, you're actually able to see the bugs and and you know you have to go back and fix those things quicker rather than building this one monolithic code base, and then it's just like this confluence of all this stuff at once
1: yeah for sure i think we're seeing problems about rapid software development creating more bugs it's because we're not putting an emphasis on getting rid of that technical debt it's not because of the speed it's because we're not putting the emphasis on the technical debt uh, which always needs to be
0: there okay yeah so the second one
1: yep so talking about informed evolution next so continuous delivery sort of enables informed evolution so on our team, we always seek not so much to architect perfect solutions, uh, but to sort of start with a, a basic problem statement. And then along with that basic problem statement, we, we want to come up with metrics that we can actually measure to quantify the problem um, and measure whether we're, we're moving the needle in that problem or not. Um, so then we once we have those two things, uh, we derive a, a really simple solution to at least part of the problem, sort of get that prototype fielded and then evolve the solution over time. Like we've been talking about, we're a little unique in that we can't really remotely monitor user behavior because everything we deploy is deployed as a, an edge computing node with no connectivity back to a cloud. Um, instead, we rely on uh, a pretty robust scientific process for evaluating and learning about the effect our tools are having on true performance. Whether you're building software as a user, as sort of right next to the actual user, or if you're in a lab 2,000 miles away, you still really have no idea if your software is helping if you aren't measuring some North Star me- metric. So um, at the Maritime Patrol and Reconnaissance Weapons School, uh, where we're stationed, we make ILOC and we also run studies on operator performance in the aircraft and in simulators. In those studies, we, we look at a lot of different tactical stuff, but we also observe usage of iLOC tools as independent variables in those studies. Um And we make real software development decisions based on those scientific studies. So based on them, we've we've done things like completely changing tactile recommendations that tools have made. We have massively changed the emphasis from sort of richness of information to speed of use on some tools and vice versa on others. Um, and we've learned what, what tools people just don't like to use from low utilization rates. And when we find a tool like that that people aren't using... We sit down with users and do some human-centered design work to to figure out if there's a way to salvage that tool or whether we just need to abandon it and focus our efforts uh, on improving other tools, making other tools, uh, or reducing technical debt. Um, I think we probably have one of the highest rates of abandoning projects in the Department of Navy because we measure so much and we find out that a lot of our ideas are not very good. And That means that we're, that probably sounds bad, but it means that we're focusing on projects that deliver value, uh, vice getting stuck maintaining something uh, that doesn't.
0: Are those measures uh, kind of iterating and adjusting over time? Or do you just like have, you know, here's the five, ten things that we're always looking at?
1: So it depends on the tool. So here's how I think about that. So when you're out, say you're, you're having a requirements driven process to software development. Um, when you when you come up with those requirements, you sort of have an idea of what that tool should look like. So let's say the, the tool is meant to help you aim a torpedo better. Uh, we'll take an example from my world. So the requirements for the software that would help you uh, aim that torpedo better could be very, very drastically different. They could focus on the human's errors. They could focus on uh, the aircraft's errors. I don't know. But the metric is always going to be the same. It's always going to be how accurate torpedoes are being dropped in the simulator and in flight. So the requirements could look like a lot of different things. The metric is not going to change at all. Um. So we try to come up with metrics that are not going to change at all. Sometimes we we realize we had the wrong metric, but that's that's more of an exception than a rule.
0: Yeah. Uh, also, I just wanted to quickly, before we go, get to the uh, last principle that you have on the prioritization of teams over applications, can you just talk a little bit more about, you said that um, you're deploying on the edge. So, you know, what are the, some special challenges that you guys are facing, trying to keep everything in sync when you have, you know, your platforms that are not connected to the cloud, continuously receiving updates and the like, kind of the way that our cell phone applications are.
1: Yeah, definitely. So what our deployment process looks like is for the P8, there's this thing called the pre-flight insertion data. So uh, these are hard drives that go on the aircraft ahead of time, and you can store information on them. And that's how we deploy our software. So we deploy it on that mission system data that goes into every aircraft across the fleet. To deploy to all of those aircraft across the fleet, Now, we have to physically send our software to the entities that build uh, those drives, and there are about five relevant ones that we have to keep updated all the time. So that's a very human process for us. Uh, It uses email and and that kind of stuff rather than cloud-driven automatic deployments. Once you get that infrastructure set up, though, it's a pretty smooth process getting it set up is the hardest part uh, to make sure all those deployments go successfully.
0: But you envision all of that kind of getting moved to the cloud here pretty soon and then updating that.
1: Uh, but I don't think that we really have a, a way forward to get that onto the the cloud exactly. So we host it on a, a SharePoint site uh, that people can download it from. So that's as close to the cloud as we're going to get to, I think. Um, I think that there is some advantage to not being reliant on exquisite ways of deploying stuff, um, you know, in a, a, a phase two warfare environment where, um, uh, networks are being degraded and being attacked um, i think having the a less technically complex way of delivering software is is a bit of an advantage in that in that phase
0: awesome yeah I, I hear you there i like it when i hear people you know push back a little bit against you know building exquisite things just because you know the tech the state of the art can do it but maybe it's not the right time for everything
1: yeah i think it's about prioritizing robustness and effectiveness over efficiency sometimes uh, i think in, we've gotten a little bit in the military towards efficiency in our most recent wars but i think probably in the great power competition effectiveness and robustness and resiliency is is probably a, a component we need to keep our, our eye on a little bit more than we have in the past
0: yeah, i love how you, how you said that that's kind of like some of the things that i love to harp on resiliency and robustness and effectiveness over efficiency i love how you said that and that kind of also for me just dives right into this whole prioritization of teams over applications. So can you talk about that last part, the prioritization of teams over applications? How, how does that manifest with uh, your team? Yeah,
1: so uh, there, I think there are things in the Department of Defense that we should outsource, uh, and there are things that we should not outsource. So uh, it probably doesn't make sense to outsource the infantry, it probably does make sense to outsource the uh, the physical construction of a, a large piece of equipment like a bomber. Uh, the reason that we should outsource the the bomber is because it can we can define the end product really well for the contractor, um, and it's also really expensive to build the necessary infrastructure in house. The reason you shouldn't outsource the infantry uh, is because the jobs that you want them to do are really poorly defined um, and are constantly changing. And when we think about software, I think the development of effective software is much more uh, analogous to the infantry example than to the constructing a bomber example. Um, It's not that expensive to buy the infrastructure needed to make that software. And good software is changing all the time and the requirements for it are changing all the time. So my team has developers who work for the government um, and who have autonomy to work on the problems that they identify as the most pressing from the ground up truth. Um, And that agility that comes from that uh, means we don't waste time on products or features that, that don't matter. Um, and it also means that we aren't politically attached to one application or another. So we can follow what the metrics tell us uh, to do without really worrying about adhering to, to some goal to get some application out there or unclear contract verbiage. Um, and that's really empowering to developers and and I think promotes job satisfaction quite a bit and, and better outputs. Uh, So, based on all that, I'd argue that software development needs to be in-housed in the Department of Defense as much as possible and and shift from a project management uh, perspective to more of a product uh, management perspective where uh, it's evolving over time with the actual user.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting what you're saying there. And it kind of goes back to, I think, Ronald Coase in 1937, I believe he wrote that, The Nature of the Firm, which was you know, transaction costs drives whether a firm is, you know, bringing work in-house or whether it's using a contract. I guess the question was really, you know, why are there firms at all? Why doesn't everyone just contract everything out? And it turns out transaction costs, right? You you don't have a clear picture of what you're going to need to have done. You're going to need to redirect the contract in the future. So there's uncertainty, there's long time scales. And when you have these kinds of situations, you want to internalize resources. So you want to bring that in-house, direct it by, um, by relational contracts, really more than like these contracts that we have in the Department of Defense where everything is, all the requirements are supposed to be specified, all the incentives are supposed to be aligned ahead of time, and then you just say go. And so it seems interesting like you said there that software, it's fast, it's iterative. You don't want to just like fix a set of requirements it seems more like kind of infantry than it does kind of like building an exquisite bomber. So I'd like you to just expand on that a little bit more and maybe just describe at least in how you guys work, you know, what's your interaction with the systems contractors and, you know, are there constraints on your development due to intellectual property? You know, like if they're going to build a new P8, the next generation P8, does the, do the contractors really just design protocols and then, the government and um, the military people will help code new types of applications, and maybe even get smaller other contractors to get in on that through APIs and the like. So, you know, what's your interaction with the contractors, and in your vision of the future, you know, how would that really kind of work?
1: Yeah, so I think a couple parts of that. So, I'll start off. Obviously, I'm a, a huge advocate for teams of tactical operators building software that helps them win fights. Um, as supportive as I am of that idea. Uh, is also how unsupportive I am of the idea that those teams sh- should also set up and manage their their own interaction with contractors. Um, staying on the right side of the law <laughs> in that area is a competency that's probably a step too far. You know, our people have to stay competent in their warfighting discipline. Adding on software development is not too bad since they are staying immersed in the challenges they face every day um, as they as they try to write those those action that business logic and code. Uh, but adding on contract management doesn't really have those same synergies. Um, so in the PA, in in our work, to support that sort of hard divide where we don't interact with system contractors at all, uh, NAVAIR, uh, the Naval Air Systems Command, has done a, a really good job insulating us from those concerns. So. They make sure the contract performer provides what we need, which is really just, for our purposes, just a web browser for basic functionality. And more recently, NAVAIR, uh, PMA290 within NAVAIR, is the organization that runs the P8 program. They they have worked with the contract performer to set up, it's called an application-based architecture uh, within the P8 mission system. And that architecture in the next year or two is going to start to push mission data to our software um, so we can start to automate even more of that tactical decision-making cycle uh, than we are right now. So you're talking about the the defense contractor building protocols and and, uh, messaging buses and that kind of stuff so that the end user can build software on top of that. I think that we are trying to do that in the PA community. I think we're really close to being able to do that. On the other side, one of the uh, one of the original conceptions of, of ilook was as a, a prototyping environment where we could sort of test ideas, refine them, and ship them off to NAVAIR. Uh, so that they, at that, at that point, could write contracts uh, to build those tools into the mission software in a more supported manner. So I- instead of giving the contractor a list of abstract requirements that some one person thought was a good idea, you'd give them an actual working copy of the software you want. And then they would just translate the code into whatever language applicable with the data hooks they need into the system. We've had some small successes along those lines with a couple of particular products, but and we will try to ramp that up over time. But we've also sort of spent most of our time focused on building the, a tool set that works in the environment that we, we have right now.
0: That's actually a really interesting idea. I'd never heard of that, where the government or the military will actually code something up and then deliver kind of like a prototype. And then that will like reduces uncertainty that focuses what the requirements are and then potentially it even kind of like keeps more IP, you know, you have more leverage there to keep that on your side. But for the P8, that's been an existing platform. And I think we're going to have, you know, we can't just wait until, you know, the next generation of everything comes around so that we can build it into the requirements and and the contract terms up front that they're going to kind of keep this modular open systems architecture going and supportable. Did, Did you have any recommendations for people out there of how, you know, to approach contractors or how to get this kind of going on current contracts was that just kind of you know a nice negotiation with the prime contractor and then and they were gung ho with it or how did that happen?
1: Um, I don't know exactly how it happened. My impression is that it was written to the the contract for the P8 in the from the very beginning with some some solid foresight from the people who were doing that. I have seen in open source some. Uh, uh, examples i think the air force uh put kubernetes on an f16 yep. uh, a little while ago so uh, there are definitely examples of how this is achievable on mission systems that have been around since the 70s um i would i would look to those contracts as as lesson for lessons of how to do that better probably cool
0: and um so one of the things in your war in the rocks article and we're going to put some links up to the things that you've written and they're all actually really great so i recommend that our listeners um Just take a look at some of his brief articles, but you wrote in War on the Rocks, you were kind of describing software development and complexity and how to deal with uncertainty. And you kind of gave us a little analogy where you were saying, you know, consider two techniques for navigating a ship over great distances. So can you just like kind of break down what you were saying there? You know, what are those two techniques for navigating a ship? And then how does that kind of come back to the core ideas of how we do software development?
1: Uh, yeah. So when I was coming up with this analogy, I was trying to think of a way to translate agile software development theories to enable mindset. So the first technique that I talked about were, it should sound familiar to anyone who's ever driven a ship or a boat. So uh, you do a small amount of, of prudent planning. Uh, you maintain a watch. You know, someone driving the boat and looking out the window for hazards, um, and then you adjust the ship's course and speed in reaction to those hazards, to the currents pushing your 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 ship off course, to winds, to equipment breaking, to to weather out there. Uh, it's reactive, right? Um, and the second technique uh, should be absurd to anyone who's ever driven a ship or a boat. You you try to predict everything at a time. Um, so all of the currents and the winds across the journey, every other ship that might cross your path, every squall, every every part breakdown, and you use all those predictions to precisely plan every movement the ship will make ahead of time. Um, and then you just go ahead and you execute that plan exactly as prescribed. So obviously, we use the first technique. Uh, anyone who drives a boat or a ship uses the first technique. Um, it would be great if that second technique were practical. You know, a Navy or a, a shipping company could really precisely predict costs, probably reduce them pretty dramatically. but. But nobody can accurately predict all those factors. So what you need is a, a thinking human um, or team of humans who can respond to what they learn along the journey uh, as they observe stuff. And so that's how I think about software development. So um, in the military, we, we by and large try to plan what we want our software to do and how we want it to do it, sort of the course and speed changes as we're making that software. Years before any users are ever going to see that software, You know, we're trying to anticipate what the user is going to need in combat years before they're ever, we're ever going to deliver anything to them. Um, and then we send that unrealistic and, and over-precise plan to a contractor who doesn't necessarily understand the business logic that well. Uh, we ask them to build something that meets the requirements we came up with and then, and then deliver those results uh, a bunch of years later. I think industries learn that software is different than the, the large heavy, hardware-heavy uh, sort of the MDAPs that we do in government, the, the major defense acquisition programs that typically use that, that kind of waterfall process that uh, is more in line with the second technique. I don't think anyone who listens to your podcast is going to be surprised by that, but that releasing that releasing software incrementally and learning from your users and, and updating the plan and vision of that software with what you've learned puts you in a place where where your product is far more valuable than you would have had with a, a more rigid plan. I, I think it also ends up usually being a lot cheaper and you provide value throughout the entire development process, not just at the end, because you're de- you're delivering partial versions of the product throughout the whole process that that users can start to leverage right away. You know, so just like a competent mariner learns what course and speed they have to put their ship on as they travel, um, as they look out their windows and, and, and see how far they are off on their GPS path, um, a software team learns what they should build um, as they watch their customers use their products. And, and the timescales, uh, if you think about it, the timescales on which those learning cycles occur, don't really have to be that different. You know, a company like Amazon deploys software changes in um, rates really similar to the rate a Navy warship executes course and speed changes. There's not a lot of difference there.
0: Yeah, I really, I really like that uh, analogy. You know, maybe if we knew everything about fluid dynamics, and we had some (laughs) exquisite, you know, Laplacian kind of calculator, we could actually determine, you know, this is exactly what the sea will be like. And we know everyone's charted courses, and we can just plan everything and just let it go. But you know, That's kind of how we actually do things in the acquisition (laughs) side, it feels like, right? Because we're we're supposed to have these long-range plans, and then we're supposed to execute the standing orders rather than allowing these incremental decisions at the lower level. And I think everybody by now kind of agrees, yes, technology and environments are uncertain, and we should handle them kind of in an incremental way. But it doesn't seem that our acquisition systems really allow for that right now. Yeah. So. Kind of going along with what we've been talking about, you know, one of the things that's topical that's kind of getting a little bit of attention now is, you know, our ability to scale, our ability our ability to react to emergencies and crises wartime. So now uh mobilization because of coronavirus seems to be getting a little bit more thought and discussion. And you wrote a little while ago in a different War in the Rocks article, you know, that the military's current reliance on high quality equipment and training is it necessarily very scalable as a strategy in the great power competition? You kind of look back on World War II, we were able to deploy a lot of manufacturing and scale up manufacturing a lot. And that's kind of how we want it, not on our like great military strategy, but on our ability to outproduce. But today we're in the information age rather than the industrial age. So, And you had some ideas on how information technology can help us scale what we need. So can you go into that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, so... To get at that idea, I think I, I had a quote in the article uh, from a general. I don't remember who it was, but it was something along the lines of in the early part of World War II, Japan had had really superb aircrew that were experienced and, and trained really, really well. Um, and, and at the end of the war, those people were all dead uh, and there were no replacements for them. And that's sort of a, a fear I have about our current force structure. It's big, uh, but it might not be big enough for a a protracted war with a great power competitor. Um, So that means that we're probably going to have to to produce aircraft and pilots and ships and mariners and all those kinds of things uh, sort of in stride with the war and at scale. Um, If you look at so it takes three or four years to produce a qualified tactical coordinator right now um, in peacetime with no stress. World War II lasted like four years. So you're talking about not getting any replacements until the war is over uh, with our current structure. And I think a lot of that is because like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, over the last 60, 70 years, we've added a lot of capability and therefore complexity into the way that we fight war. So we add that capability. We haven't really spent enough time trying to focus on reducing the complexity that goes along with that capability. I think allowing tactical level operators to reduce that complexity for themselves um, by building software defined tactics tools, we'll go a long way towards uh, restoring at least some of the sca- the scalability that we had in World War II that proved itself really valuable in a great power competition.
0: Great before we end up here, I wanted to just ask you about you you're doing some innovative organizational kinds of things in the Navy right now producing your own software on the operation side. Was top cover kind of crucial to enabling this? For you guys, like, how important has that story been? Do you know how high up approvals had to go? Yeah, so I think that
1: the the phrase "top cover" implies that there might have been some uh, bureaucratic effort to to squash look somewhere along the way. Um, and since it started four years ago, we've been really fortunate that that nothing like that has ever has ever happened. So uh, I'm sure there were some stakeholders somewhere who uh, would rather not have had old business models disrupted, but. Um, I think a, a bureaucracy's main weapon to kill things it doesn't like is either eliminate, eliminate funding or divert the innovator's attention with other busy work. Right? I think our, biz- our biggest disadvantage is that we don't have the same DevSecOps tooling that the well-marketed Air Force efforts have, but the silver lining is that we are o- able to operate just fine. Uh, with zero budget. And that makes it so that there's really nothing uh, an adversarial bureaucracy could do from its typical playbook to keep us from making useful software. Now, not that there's really anyone who, who wants to do that anyway. So rather than providing cover, leadership has positively um, enabled our, our mission, proactively enabled our mission by getting us the resources uh, that we need when we've needed them. So when we got to the point where we were pushing large enough a large enough code base that uh, security was a real concern, our group admiral got us the support from NAVAIR to conduct se- to have them conduct security analyses with every release. Um, and when we asked NAVAIR for a way to access mission system data, uh, like we talked about, they worked really hard to accelerate that and, and create a, a, a safe, secure way to do that. So my idea of the uh, sort of the perfect innovation process, at least the one that we're using, um, is the, the innovator comes up with an idea. That's the easy part. Um, that's so sort of step one. Step two is the the innovator tests the key enabling assumptions. So they have that idea, that idea has some assumptions that enable it, and so you have to test those. you come up with experiments and you test those. Um if those sort of assumptions are validated, then you then the innovator continues to build that. and then uh, the innovator asks for specific help. Uh, when they come across specific obstacles backed by data and, and only when necessary. Uh, so that's the model we've been very careful to follow. And I think a lot of times in organizations, innovators go straight from uh, from having an idea to asking senior leadership for help with hit or funding. And then when they say no, they get discouraged, but the problem is they're they're missing those two really important middle steps of testing the assumptions and dealing what you can without help or money. You know, there's still a core mission going on that can't stop every time there's a new idea out there. Um, most new ideas are bad. Um, if you look at Silicon Valley, like 90% of startups fail. So you have to test and experiment to find the good ideas uh, and then invest in those successful ones. Um, so I see senior leadership's role as encouraging that experimentation by rewarding it when it happens. Um, you know, rewarding through the personnel system is really important to provide that mentorship and, and just to help remove obstacles when they do come up. Uh, not to really do the, the work for the innovator. Um Or act as a, a certifying official that allows or disallows the pursuit of an idea
0: yeah, it's good to hear that you've had a lot of support, and it seems like let me know if this is wrong. you kind of did this on your own time, right? Like you had an idea, you believed in it, you invested your own time and your own talents into making it realized, and then when you had something to show, you showed that to leadership, and that really brought them on board. You didn't just like create a ten slide. PowerPoint and then say, hey, look, I I can go do this thing, but I haven't done anything yet. (laughs) You know, like, so you invested your time. But you think that, um, I mean, you you probably already had a full workload, right? So it seems like, would, would you say that others throughout the Navy and throughout the armed forces can really start doing the exact same things you did? And if they are able to produce something, they should be able to scale that actually you know bring it into the force and then be rewarded for that and and hopefully celebrated. and even if they failed hopefully celebrated for at least trying right so um, yeah how do you how do you, you you think this can really like scale across the the military and what kind of incentives would help people because it seems like a lot of times why would I invest my time if I I don't think that this thing is ever going to go anywhere. So if if you think like stories like yours could really help people like actually believe, Hey, we can go do this. It might only be 10 or 50% chance, but you know, this is important and we can really make a difference here.
1: Definitely. So, so when I think about scaling, all this innovation stuff is really about getting people to, to put in the extra work outside of their, their main job. Right. So uh, to get people to do that kind of thing, you have to reward them for doing it. So in, I think one of the reasons the Air Force has had a lot of success in this area is that uh, it's not necessarily a career killer in a lot of uh, Air Force communities to go to a, a place like AFWorks or a, a Kessel Run or something like that for a little while to go do something a little bit different. Whereas in the Navy, if I were to go to an organization like that um, as an aviator, my career would be over at that point. So to, to help try to get around those personnel issues, Uh, that's really why I'm advocating that this software development, this this innovation stuff happens at the warfare development centers that are career enhancing uh, billets. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to change the the personnel system of the Navy, but we can at least bring the good stuff to where the the good jobs are um, and get those in the right place. So we started to try to scale to other communities by um, advising. One one thing we're doing is advising a similar software project uh, for the mine hunting community building some, some interesting mission planning software for them. Um, and we're also getting involved with the submarine community by, we started with a, a lightweight application that's that's going to be a really huge time saver um, operationally on the bridge. Our ultimate vision is that every warfare development center across the Navy, uh, like Top Gun, like the Maritime Patrol and Reconstance Weapons School, uh, will have a small software development shop with a, a couple active duty operators making the, the sort of low overhead software defined tactics software that we're making. And in keeping with our general software innovation philosophy, or sorry, our general innovation philosophy, we're going to keep taking a bottom-up approach, you know, starting with demonstrating value with small projects and then scaling as that that value proves itself out. Rather than, you know, we're about doing stuff, not presenting stuff, right? So when when we get to that presenting phase, we want to have data showing what we've done and why that should keep going.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's good to hear, you know, and I think the the lines are blurring between research, development, testing, evaluation, procurement operations and maintenance, you hear this, oh, we should have colorless appropriation because, you know, a lot of what's going on the operation side, there's still innovation being funded and done out on the operations and the maintenance, and you're getting funded through military pay, presumably. But it's, you know, it's good to hear that. And I think one of the interesting things is the flexibility. You didn't have to go and request a program element and get funding justified two years in advance just to go try something out. You, on the operations side, were able to just kind of experiment, do something, show something, and iterate. You know, allowing for that flexibility is really important, it seems to me, to, to allow this experimentation to grow and to deliver new capabilities on timescales that are human relevant and not, you know, some yeah. contract that might take many months. So, you know, as we wrap up here, is there anything you'd like to end on?
1: Yeah. So, uh, if I could just touch on something a little bit more sort of future looking and more speculative, so software defined tactics, um, in-house software development, tactical level operators making software. These are, are things that are, are improving our capacity and capability as a military today. Um, but taken collectively, I think they also make up uh, a vision of what the U.S. military needs to maintain dominance in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Um, uh, sort of as it becomes clear that autonomy and and uh, non manned uh, platforms are a necessary feature of our future military force, uh, you know I, I worked a fair amount in the machine learning space and I've got to tell you there, there's no magic algorithm that's going to produce the autonomous weapons that we will need to keep America and her interests secure in, in the coming decades. So, uh, you know at best deep learning techniques will will help automate some of the the observation step in the OODA loop, but um, you still need software defined tactics to orient the, the the machine to to do the things it needs to do. So. We need written code, traditional algorithms um, that do the software-defined tactics, and I think that help encapsulate the uh, sort of the corporate knowledge, the, the hard-won the hard business logic uh, understanding that human operators have sweat and blood to earn. Um, and to get that code uh, built, we need tactical-level operators making that software. They won't be able to encapsulate all that code in the short term, certainly. But, you know, in, in 20, 30, 40 years, I think we'll have a code base that, that is able to do that. So once we have those autonomous platforms built uh, and powered by these algorithms that we're building right now, um, on the other side, once we've transitioned certain communities, uh, it's hard to envision our, our separate contractor um, acquisition management, uh, warfare development and, and operational entities Ah, uh, producing useful effects on the on the battlefield cohesively. So you know right now, operational units operate the platform. Warfare development centers collect data and devise tactics. Um, acquisitions managers buy the software that the warfare development development centers say the the operational guys need, and then contractors build that software. When you take the human out of the platform and everything you do hinges on those that software-defined tactics working well, uh, and you need to be able to rapidly change those new tactics to keep pace with evolving threats. I, I don't think you can rely on that drawn out process to provide that at all. I think all four of those entities need to be much more tightly coupled uh, than they are right now. And I think that looks like moving the the collection of performance data from the warfare development centers down to the operational units, moving the, the software divine tactics, software development work from the acquisitions organizations down to the, the warfare development centers, moving the software infrastructure work from the... That enables that, that, that software development from the outside contractors to the acquisitions entities and then having the contractors work on the really heavy infrastructure work um, and sort of the initial deployment of major platforms um, and the, the higher, the, the more exquisite research uh, sort of stuff. So I think the work we're doing in the PA community is not really geared towards any grand plan to bring that vision to fruition. But uh, I, I do think carefully about documenting the way that we're doing the work uh, so that future defense professionals uh, will have sort of a playbook uh, when it comes time to field those those platforms. Um, I think the organizational openness and, and trust that that we have in the U.S. military and the lowest ranking member um, of the team uh, is really a necessary component to make this this kind of organization that that work. Um, And I think that gives us a a real sustainable uh, and competitive uh, advantage over our less open adversaries in the future. Uh, So I think we do well to lean into that kind of thing.
0: I think that's a really incredible and insightful way to end this. Sean Lavelle, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having me, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.